Welcome back to Revelation Revisited, our sequential study in the book of Revelation. And uh, we have reached the passage beginning in verse 9 of chapter 1. And uh, it goes on to the end of the chapter, verse 20. Uh, we have previously seen in the first eight verses in uh, the first chapter of Revelation, how uh, the book of Revelation majors on the glory of Jesus Christ. And the passage we're going to begin to look at today uh, develops that in considerable detail. Now, this passage is really too long for a single session and yet of course in describing the first of john the apostle's visions of which of course there are many others following in the book of revelation uh, it is a, a unity it's a single narrative and therefore it's not easy to split up to divide into two uh, but although it's not easy it's not impossible because verses 9 to 20 of chapter 1 bring to us two themes. The first is a continuation and development of the theme, the theme of the glory of Christ. And the second is a theme relating to the nature of the churches to which John is going to send the book of Revelation uh, once he finishes it. And uh, we're therefore being able to look this time, in this session, at the glory of Christ as it is developed in this passage. And then in the next session, we can move on to the way that relates particularly to the churches of Asia, uh, and, of course, to modern churches, because what was true for them is also true for us today. Uh, now, I'm going to read, therefore, from <clears throat> Revelation chapter 1. Uh, but before I do so, let me just point out a, a technical issue. And that is in verse 11, uh, uh, you will find that some uh, modern versions, particularly the English Standard Version, the ESV, re remove all uh, reference to the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, I shall be reading from the New King James Version, which includes that in verse 11. And the reason for this difference goes back to an uncertainty about what John actually wrote in the original manuscript, the autograph, as we call it. And uh, it's possible that these words relating Christ to the Alpha and the Omega have been inserted uh, to aid clarification by a, a subsequent scribe, or, or it's equally possible that they've been removed uh, by scribes uh, because there appears to be a conflict 
as to which person of the triune God is actually due to have this title applied to them. Um, in verses uh, four to eight that we've already studied, it's perfectly clear that it is God the Father who is the Alpha and the Omega. And yet in verse 11, if those words are included, it is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity to whom they apply. Uh, now, okay, there is a textual problem, but there's no theological problem. Because in verse 17 of the passage we're looking at, uh, we have the Lord Jesus Christ saying, uh, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. And of course, those words, first and last, are identical in meaning to Alpha and Omega, because Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and, and Omega is the last. And then also in Revelation 22, the title Alpha and Omega, the uh, Alpha and the Omega, is applied directly to Christ. So the answer is clearly that both the Father and the Son use this expression to describe themselves. They are both the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And what that means, of course, is that there is nothing outside of the scope of their power or knowledge. Uh, there's no letter in the, in, in the Greek alphabet before alpha, and there's no letter after omega. There's nothing outside of it. And so there's nothing outside of the knowledge and wisdom and power and sovereignty of Almighty God, whether we're talking of the Father or of the Son. Well, having, I hope, cleared that little point up, let me read uh, the passage that we're going to actually look at. I'm not going to read um, all the way through to verse 20, but uh, I'm going to stop at the end of the description John gives us here of the glorified Christ. Verse 9, then, of Revelation 1. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned I saw 
seven golden lampstands. The lampstands, of course, represent the churches. They symbolize the churches, and they do so in uh, typically apocalyptic language. But we shall see more of that next time. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell as his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand upon me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Well, we leave the reading at that point. Because we want to look at this description that uh, the apostle gives, or that he sees in his vision, the description of the glorified Jesus Christ. And I think it's, it's pretty obvious that this is uh, typically apocalyptic in its, in, in its style. In other words, the descriptions do not correspond to reality. John actually saw them. John saw what he describes. But he knew, and the churches that uh, would receive this revelation, they would also know that the description is symbolic. And each of the descriptive items here applied to Christ has a symbolism relating to some underlying reality. That's what we need to expect from apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation. And uh, uh, just an obvious example to really underline this, um, <clears throat> we're told here that there was a sword uh, protruding from the mouth of Christ. Well, of course, Christ doesn't go around with a sword sticking out of his mouth, even in glory. Uh, it, it is a picture. It is a picture of the word of God, an apocalyptic picture. And so every other item in this description, I believe, is uh, an apocalyptic representation of the character and power and person of Jesus Christ. So let's look at them. <clears throat> First of all, we're told that John saw that the one in the midst of the lampstands was one like 
the Son of Man. And you might say, well, how does that in any way uh, increase the glory of Christ? Because it's a very down-to-earth title, isn't it? The Son of Man is a title, in fact, that he preferred to use of himself in the Gospels, particularly in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, he would refer to himself as the Son of Man. And uh, that would seem to be a very mundane description, not a glorious description. But we have to go back uh, further than the Gospels to discover the real significance of this title, Son of Man. And in order to do that, we need to turn back to the book of Daniel, and uh, that is in chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14. And it's such an important passage that I'm going to look it up and read it to you. Daniel 7 and verses 13 and 14. I was watching in the night visions, writes Daniel, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Uh, here, of course, Daniel is having a vision of his own, as he says. And uh, he sees the Ancient of Days, that is, God the Father, and one coming in the clouds of heaven uh, is brought near to him. And it is to this one, this Son of Man, that dominion and glory and the kingdom and so on are given. Now, this is a, a very wonderful prophecy of the uh, nature of Jesus Christ. Uh, he is indeed the one who will come uh, in the clouds of heaven in his return uh, to this earth. And he will receive at that point dominion, glory, and a kingdom. In fact, he already has those things that they will be consummated at his return, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So you see, we have here in Daniel a, a, a rich and glorious uh, unpacking of the title son of man and john and the readers of his book would have been familiar perhaps more familiar than we are uh, with the book of daniel and they would know immediately that the term the name the title son of man is a reference back to this wonderful passage in the book of daniel no shortage of glory there is there in fact, it says specifically 
that Christ will receive glory. And that glory, of course, is already visible to the believer. Uh, John, in his uh, gospel, it says, uh, we be beheld his glory. Uh, he came and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glorious of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. So the, the glory of Christ is already visible. We shall see more of that presently to the believer. But one day that glory will be manifested uh, to all humanity. Well then, uh, let's uh, pursue this. Uh, the one whom John sees in his vision is like the Son of Man. Precisely the same terminology that's used in Daniel. And there follow seven other descriptions, filling out perhaps the initial statement that this is the Son of Man in the full sense of the prophet Daniel. Uh, other descriptions filling that out and demonstrating the glory of Christ in certain detailed aspects. And as time permits, we're going to look at those now. The first of them is that in verse 13 we're told about his garments. He is dressed in garments that are essentially priestly garments. All the priests under the Levitical system, under the Mosaic law, uh, were dressed in a similar way. Not just the high priest. And Christ is, by description of his dress, as a long robe down to the feet and the, the sash around his waist or chest, um, is, is represented symbolically as a priest. Now, <clears throat> that is a theme, of course, developed at great length and in great detail in the letter to the Hebrews. In fact, it's the only New Testament letter that does develop the idea of the priesthood of Christ. And there we have, uh, for example, um, in Hebrews 4, verse 14, uh, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus Christ the Lord. Let us hold fast our faith and let us come boldly uh, to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is a priest in a double sense. A, a priest, you see, is a person, speaking generally, uh, the priest is a person who has access to the deity. And, and that is the key feature of being a priest. Now, Jesus Christ is the only priest who has access to the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the maker of heaven and earth the only true God. Uh, none of the priests of the Old Testament and no priests of any other religion 
has that access. And Christ has the access because he is one with God. If the Father is the Alpha and the Omega, Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, he is able to say, uh, he who has seen me has seen the Father, in John 14, um, verse 9, I think. Uh, Christ has unique access to the Father as being the second person of the triune God. And he uses that access in two ways. He uses it, first of all, as a priest to make intercession for his people. He enters the throne room of God and he is able, says Hebrews, uh, to save to the uttermost all who come to God through him, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for them. But there's a second way in which he uses that access. He actually brings us into the presence of God. He brings us to that throne of grace so that we might be priests. He has made us a kingdom of priests. We, we read earlier in our chapter, he has made us a kingdom of priests or kings and priests to our God. So every believer is a priest in the sense that through Christ, through our great high priest, we do have access to God the Father, to the throne of grace, that we might uh, intercede for others and that we might pray for ourselves also and receive the grace and the mercy that as sinners, as redeemed sinners, uh, we always need. So that's the first thing. His clothing uh, is a symbol of his priesthood. If you want to know more about the priesthood of Christ, uh, read the book of Hebrews. It tells you a great, great deal about it. Now, the second thing we are told uh, would seem to be at first perhaps a rather, rather trivial point. The second thing is that Christ has white hair this description of Christ uh, has white hair. Now, white hair normally relates to age. People's hair goes, goes white as they get older. Not always, but uh, that is generally the case. And the accumulation of age is also supposed to relate to the accumulation of wisdom. Uh, of course, it doesn't always, but nevertheless, uh, in typical terms, old age is a representative uh, of white hair and wisdom that go together. And, and I think we have here uh, a, a picture, a symbol of the wisdom of Christ. Uh, a missionary friend of mine uh, who used to spend a lot of time in, in Africa uh, often teased me uh, as one who has white hair, saying that I ought to go with him because I would receive uh, an enormous uh, respect and, and uh, listening uh, in Africa because I have white hair. Uh, to the average African, certainly in the countries he visited regularly, uh, a person with white hair 
was a person who, uh, who, who deserved enormous respect uh, and a good listening. Well, uh, let's take that as a common allusion. White hair equals wisdom. And, and in this description of the glorified Christ, he has abundance of white hair. And of course, there is a wisdom attaching to Christ that attaches to no one else. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 um, and 31, uh, the, uh, the writer Paul, in this case, uh, says that, that God has made Christ wisdom for us. Christ is made for us, or Christ became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written no flesh shall glory in his presence you glory should glory in the Lord so uh, there is a, a, a tremendous theme of wisdom in the Bible right through the Bible Old Testament and New Testament which ascribes wisdom to God. Now, now God has perfect knowledge, Christ has perfect knowledge, but knowledge in itself is not wisdom. Wisdom is uh, the ability to apply knowledge in a correct way. Wisdom lies in the proper application of the things we know. And so it is that although God has perfect knowledge, he nevertheless has beyond the perfect knowledge the ability to apply that knowledge in a wise way. He is, uh, says Paul elsewhere, the only wise God. Uh, and, and this is something that enables us to glory in the Lord, says 1 Corinthians uh, 31. Uh, well, we are able to glory in Christ and we are able to receive from him the wisdom that comes from above and uh, James tells us if any man if any person lacks wisdom let him ask of God who gives to all men all people uh, freely and does not blame and we do lack wisdom don't we every day we need wisdom from God and Christ is that wisdom as we look to Christ as we listen to Christ as we obey Christ as we observe Christ in the scriptures we're, we're, we're learning wisdom we're learning how to live we're getting knowledge the knowledge of God and we're getting an understanding of how best to apply that to the practical realities of life Christ is made unto us wisdom from God. Well, then the third thing here in verse 14 this time, uh, he is said to have piercing eyes. Well, he doesn't say that. He has eyes like a flame of fire, but I'm interpreting that as eyes that see through you, eyes that look into your very heart and mind. Uh, 
and uh, in Psalm 139, which is worth reading, we won't take the time now to do so, but uh, Psalm 139 uh, begins with this, you have known me, seen me and known me, that you know my down-sittings and my uprisings, there's not a word in my tongue uh, that you do not know in advance. I'm paraphrasing somewhat. Um, God has perfect knowledge of us. And the eyes of Christ, as it were, look into our very hearts. And that is one of the great realities of his ministry here on earth. He, he read the minds of those around him. He knew what they were thinking. And uh, on a number of occasions, he answered their thoughts when they had not got to the point of uttering those thoughts in words, whether it's his enemies, the Pharisees, or whether it's his disciples. It happens again and again. He knows exactly what they're thinking. And God, God knows exactly what we're thinking. God knows our minds. He knows our thoughts. There are uh, the piercing eyes of Christ look into our very hearts and minds and souls and this is one of the great realities that we have to live with now for a christian this is a good thing uh, we we cannot hide anything from god and we know that and it causes us to bring our sins to him for forgiveness it causes us to confess our sins to him it causes us to to recognize our needs and to uh, and to apply to God for grace to meet those needs. For an unbeliever, it's equally true, although he doesn't know it. God looks into his heart, her heart, and sees what is truly there. And uh, that is something that is a rather frightening because the Lord Jesus, for example, said every idle word that a man shall speak, he shall give account of it in the day of judgment. Well, I think that equally applies to idle thoughts, sinful thoughts, lustful thoughts, wrong desires of any kind. God knows them, sees them. Christ has piercing eyes. Well, then the next thing is in verse 15. This is the fourth of these characteristics. Uh, he has what I've called powerful feet. His feet are, uh, are shining like, like brass refined in a furnace. Um, you might say, well, why, why didn't he say they were like gold in a furnace? Uh, well, the answer is that... that Brass is a higher melting point than gold. And the higher the temperature of a furnace, the brighter it is. So there we have the feet of Christ described in this rather surprising way. Again, it's symbolism. And in the Bible, feet have a significance that they don't perhaps have for us today. For us today, the feet are simply uh, never appendages, very useful but forgotten most of the time until we injure them and then we know how much we need them anyway in the bible feet have two main connotations the first of all they speak of 
uh, possession. They speak of possession. Abraham was told that every place on which his feet trod would become his inheritance. And as he wandered around the land of Canaan, uh, he trod on many places. He, he therefore, as he trod upon it, as he walked the ways and climbed the hills and traced the valleys, followed the rivers, he was possessing the land in, in prospect, of course. He was staking out today uh, a prospector looking for gold or diamonds or something like that might stake a claim and uh, mark out an area that uh, it was going to be his to work and his alone. Uh, so it is that uh, Abraham had this privilege of staking out a claim to the land that would be given to his descendants. And Christ does that uh, in the uh, description of the Christian's complete armour in Ephesians chapter 6. Um, we're told that one of the pieces of armour or one of the equipments that the soldier has are feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so as Christ goes forth, as it were, by the gospel, in the gospel, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, into this world, uh, he possesses land. He possesses people. He creates a kingdom for himself. It is he who builds his church, not, not us. And it is his work to, as it were, mark out the, the limits of his, his possession. And those limits are beyond our comprehension. And perhaps there are no limits, not in the ultimate and general sense. Now, the other way that, that feet are featured in the Bible is in terms of victory. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 25, for he, Christ, must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Everything, all the enemies of God, will be put under the feet of Christ. The uh, previous verse says this, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he has put an end to all rule and all authority and power. The feet, therefore, represent, in certain circumstances, the power and the victory. The victory and the power of the victor. Uh, we know in ancient times that uh, kings and victorious generals would conquer a people, take prisoners, and would quite literally walk over them, walk over their bodies, put them under his feet. And uh, Christ, in a figurative sense, does that. He brings his opponents to nothing. 
he conquers them. And we shall see later that he is the one on the white horse who goes forth, conquering and to conquer his feet, denote his victory. Victory which he has already won, a victory which he has already obtained, victory over death for himself by his resurrection. And that victory will be made ours when death is itself put to death and destroyed. And then the next thing in verse 15 is his voice, the voice uh, like the uh, thunder of many waters. I, I think that may well be a reference to waterfalls. I don't know whether you've ever been to uh, one of the great waterfalls of the world, like Niagara Falls or Iguazu Falls in, uh, uh, in Brazil and uh, Argentina. Um, the, the, the sound of the water is utterly deafening. It uh, overcomes all other sounds, difficult to hold a conversation in the presence of these uh, waterfalls. And I think the picture here, the symbolism here, is that the voice of Christ overwhelms, drowns out all other voices when he reveals himself to a person. His voice, his commands, his comfort, his promises, his blessing, they drown out all the voices of the world and we should be willing to and aware of that voice and willing to listen to it. He, he speaks and his voice is our command. One of the most wonderful verses in John's Gospel in, uh, in, in, in chapter 10 is this, and my sheep, he says, speaking to his followers, of course, speaking of his followers, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, <clears throat> and no man shall ever pluck them out of my hand. They shall never perish. And that command of Christ, the call of Christ, the irresistible call of Christ, is that which comes to a person and brings them out of darkness into light. It's that which brings about conversion to Christ. I remember how he walked past the, the uh, tax gatherer, Matthew, and uh, he looked at Matthew sitting, doing his job, sitting at a table in the open air, uh, doing tax gathering work, keeping the records. And Jesus said to Matthew, follow me, just that. No explanation, no reason given, simply a command, follow me. Well, how did Matthew respond? He said, well, just hold on a moment, I've got some work to finish here. Um, I'll, I'll follow you later. Or, why should I follow you? Who are you? What is it that uh, uh, 
makes it important for me to follow you. But none of these obvious and natural reactions took place. Matthew simply got up and followed Christ. And, and that is the, the power of the persuasive call of Christ. He calls us, he calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And uh, that is something that every Christian has experienced, every true Christian. A lot of people call themselves Christians who've never heard the voice of the shepherd and have never truly followed him. But those who have know that the voice of Christ overwhelms all other voices, drowns out the voices and clamor of the world, so that we hear, as it were, only what he says. Doesn't mean to say we're not aware of other things. We live natural, normal lives as Christians. But the the sound that, as it were, um, predominates in our hearts and minds, and therefore in our lives, is the voice of many waters, the voice of Christ. Then we get the issue on uh, in verse sixteen of the the sharp two-edged sword that protrudes out of the mouth of Christ. And this is so obviously a picture, a symbol of the word of Christ. Uh, the word of Christ is like a powerful two-edged sword. Hebrews takes this up. Um, uh, the word of God is, is, is quick, that is living uh, and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, piercing even to uh, the division of soul from spirit, a joints from marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Uh, that's Hebrews 4 and verse 12. And that is a wonderful picture. I, I don't know whether... John was aware of what was written in Hebrews or, or whether Hebrews was aware of what was written in Revelation. Um, I think perhaps it, it's, it's possible that neither knew about the other book or knew of it uh, at the time they wrote their own. And I think therefore it was quite possibly a, a common, a common um, illustration of the power of the word of Jesus Christ. And the first two allusions, dividing soul and spirit, um, and uh, dividing joints and marrow, are, are really simply illustrations pointing out how difficult it is. People today get very confused between soul and spirit. I'll do a talk on that one day. Um, uh, and uh, the joints and the marrow, the bones and the marrow are so intimately connected, the marrow is part of the bone, that uh, it would be very difficult to separate one from the other. So he's got two pictures there that speak of the difficulty of doing what the sword does. And uh, then we come to the reality. It is a discerner. The word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
And that, in a sense, we already looked at when we thought about the piercing eyes of Christ. God is able to see into our hearts. And the last thing, the seventh thing in verse 16, is the statement that his face, his countenance was shining like the sun in his strength. And this we can link very clearly with uh, uh, the wonderful statement in verse in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. Um, Peter, uh, Paul, I'm sorry, has been talking uh, about the uh, blindness of the unsaved person. If our gospel is hidden, he says, it is hidden to those who are lost, in whom the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of those that do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ should shine upon them. But, talking then of Christians, but God has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that, I think, is the reality behind this symbolism of a shining face. It is in the face of Christ, and, and the face really reflects the person. It is in the person of Christ that we see the glory of God. God has revealed his glory to us. But he's done it in Christ. And it is as we gaze into the face of Christ, as we study his word, as we meditate upon it, as we take it to heart, and as we seek to obey it, the glory of God shines upon us out of the face of the one whose word it is. Have you had that experience? Has God, who, who created the earth, who made the light to shine out of darkness in creation, has God shined in your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ? I trust that he has. Well, next time we'll be looking at what all this means to the churches uh, to whom John writes and therefore what it means to us. Thank you.